Hey everyone, welcome to Creating the Comic Addendum Edition. So we have another great interview following up on episode three in which I talk about editing. This week is with Michael J. Florio, and uh, this is a wide-ranging discussion. We go over a lot of things, not only editing. Uh, it was great. Um, we talked about a lot of different things. Uh, could have gone on even longer, and I hope to have him on the podcast soon. So without further ado, check out my interview with Michael J. Florio. Hey everyone, so I'm here with Michael J. Florio. Uh, he's an editor, a writer, a, 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 a jack of all trades, as it, as it would seem, and we're going to get into all of that. So, uh, uh, Michael, thank you for being on the show. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. So, so I guess whenever we, uh, whenever I, you know, have an interview for for any of these shows, I, you know, the first question is just a little bit about your own kind of origin story. First, as a comic book fan, how you came into it, because I find that there are some people who come into it very year early at a young age, some people who start, yeah. you know, in, in in older years, some who are mixed. But like, yeah, what what's your kind of origin story as far as like your entry into comic books as a fan? Um, that's a that's a real good question. So I'll start with the origin story because it's kind of funny. Uh, and it actually started with rock and roll. Okay. So uh, my parents uh, separated at three and my mom got together with my sister's father. And he spent my entire childhood trying to be a rock star. So I remember going to late night shows at coffee or cafes and, and bars when they couldn't find sitters. Um, they also used to record with Three Doors Down here in Gulfport wow. before they got really big. So I remember playing in like uh, rented uh, closed studios with like boxes and old core or old, old store uh clothes hangers and, and like gymnastics and stuff with their kids and then growing up around music and then we moved to to vegas and then when we got to vegas they they switched the brand name from uh special ed to some other oh tenacious d that's what they called themselves and uh he always like he had this friend who for some reason uh did reconstruction work and always came home with like a box full of shit. And it was like cool shit for kids, like big toys. Or I, I remember one time he came home uh, and, and it was literally just chock full of Sega. It was a Sega four controllers and like 80 something games. And it was like, have fun. And he did the same thing with a box of comics one day. And I remember going through the stack and uh, the, the thing that stuck out to me the most was this uh, silver and gold platinum foil cover of silver surfer. And that was my first comics experience was Marvel Comics. And I'm kind of biased towards Marvel. I'm not a fan of the, the direction that big publishers are taking these days. There are some publishers who are doing really good with stories and kind of leaving the politics out of it. But I was really immersed in the Silver Surfer comic because it was the first time I'd ever really been exposed to science fiction of that caliber. And um, ever since then, I've just kind of been obsessed with... Uh, character creation and so i gravitated towards action figures and then i wrote these just illustrious crossover stories with action figures like my dad my stepdad had built this uh desk out of a door and uh some some fencing posts in my room and he made an l-shaped desk this desk was huge i mean imagine a regular sized door right the width of it that was my desk all the way around the room i had a bed on the other side but it's because I had so many toys. I was writing these illustrious stories that I would leave them kind of like D and D gamers leave their, leave their stories in motion for the next game session. And I wish I had a, I wish I had a storytelling journal because man, they were so just immersive and deep. And uh, that's, that's kind of how my love for my, my 
discovery of comics led to my discovery of telling stories. And that's also where I learned to read. And that's also where I was exposed to uh, how pictures move in the essence of storytelling. It's kind of the origins of, of, or the antithesis of me growing up to become what I am now, which is a, a one thing that I am now, which is comic book editor. Um, so it's a very interesting story. <laughs> yeah. So now, okay. So there's a, there's um. I know that most of the interviews going to be focused more on comics and editing, but I'd love to know more about like, what's your, how did you get into writing professionally? And, you know, what was your background in writing? Like what, you know, so obviously, you know, you kind of, there's, we have the origin and that and the passion, but yeah. what, you know, I guess at what point did you feel we're like, you know, I can do this and do this for some money. And also, you know, at what point, um, you know, what, what is your background as far as just writing? I think I think lots of people in my position would like to say that they came from, you know, a great home where their you know, parents supported them. And I didn't have the validation and love, per se, that that most kids experience or that some kids experience growing up uh, pursuing their goals. And stuck up until up and up until my 30s, I didn't honestly know what I wanted to do with my life. Even I'm still kind of teetering on which medium that I, I feel strongest in, because like you said, I'm a I'm a jack of all trades. Because my uh, my degrees basically have trained us or have taught us the in and outs of writing and editing in, in every single medium from marketing to to film and into comic books and even transmedia, which is a combination of a multitude of medias to tell a story. Uh, think of social media meets storytelling. That's what transmedia is, basically. When you engage with a TikTok and that TikTok's connected to a, a part of one of four and it also links to something on their Twitter and then you go to their Instagram and then they hit you with ads and all this, that's transmedia. Mm -hmm. That might be transmedia marketing, but it's transmedia storytelling because they're using multiple, multiple, um, multiple elements of online uh, storytelling and components to tell you a story and it gets you engaged, which is the point of storytelling. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was 14 and I was sitting in probably one of the most useless classes in Southern education, which was safety, a hunting, hunting and boating safety, okay. <laughs> which is basically you watching a video and your teacher gives you the answers to the test and you get these cool little cards that, I don't know, the state recognize you as someone who can safely handle a gun while okay. hunting and also <laughs> driving a boat at 15, right? And I didn't even have a learner's permit. Um, so I just, I spent the time. Uh, creating this story uh, as a fantasy story still very vivid is the first story I ever wrote was 14 pages it was part of something larger but at the time I wasn't equipped with the knowledge to continue a story further than you know well here we go so I was pantsing this fantasy story and it was uh, it was called the uh, the armor of Validaria and it was about a king who usurped uh, a kingdom and he was from an ethereal realm, and uh, there was a chosen daughter, and she was whisked away, you know, by her uncle and taken to this, you know, secret thing in the woods. Kind of sounds like Snow White meets Lord of the Rings. And then uh, there's a prophecy, and she's got to find all these different armor sets that her father had, because the the guy who took it over had just taken these armor bits and just like spread them across the continent. All right? If you ever heard the stories of uh, the guy. Um, in Africa, who was supposedly Jesus, and that uh, powers that be like spread his body parts throughout the world. And then he like reassembled himself and came into like great power. That was kind of that concept. Mm -hmm. And so she needed the armor. And then the idea was she would find the armor, 
and that would span over like three books or three stories because I was very into Aragon, Christopher Paolini. Uh, was was a big inspiration early on when I was reading books, uh, not Harry Potter. Aragon was way more dynamic and and creative because he created you know basically his own language and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I experienced writing. I'd stopped reading comic books at that time. Um, my youth and early teenage years uh, was really taken up by experiencing life itself uh, through various jobs and you know friendships and obviously different different types of love dynamics yeah. and and failed relationships and non-failed relationships i moved around a lot i was couch hopping you know basically what people do when they don't go to college and finish high school uh trying to find themselves in life yeah. and it wasn't until about 2015 after my first divorce that i moved and i was closing the book on this relationship that has been playing peekaboo with me for a long long time and then i discovered that after that relationship failed that I needed to do something for me. And so I, I didn't know what that was. I didn't want to go to college because I had so many friends went to college and they weren't finding jobs unless they were in industries that really needed you. So like nurses, lawyers, everybody else who went to school for something creative had fell into marketing or retail and, and fast food chains and upper management or restaurants. And I was just like, well, you could just do that anyway. I was setting mobile homes and I was escort driving for a company in Louisiana. I was just like, well, if I'm going to do something real with my life, um, it needs to be something that I love. And I've spent the last 25, 30 years at that point playing video games. So it was like game design. Uh, spoke to someone at Full Sail, got fast-tracked. I did that for about a year. I, I learned how to write for games. I learned how to uh, create assets. Uh, worked in Maya and did a bunch of stuff with some of the the game systems like UE4. And uh, I made Pong from scratch. That was pretty okay. cool. And that was the last big thing I did. But, you know, it wasn't until my grandma had died and that I started doing research on, like, how she could cure cancer herself that I realized that there's a huge, there's a huge fallout between what's real and what's not. And so at that point in time, I didn't realize it was a political switch, but I made uh, I made a decision to transfer into writing. And so that's when I transferred into the bachelor's uh, into the bachelor's degree program at Full Sail, uh, creative writing for entertainment. Okay. Uh, they they no longer offer the master's degree program. Um, they have this new thing called FC three, which is basically a pay as you go type of type of learning, which I thought was cool. I wish they had that when I was available or when I was going to school because that'd have been cheaper on me. Um, but uh. Uh, right after the bachelor's, I finished my master's. And okay. and once I had finished that, I had, you know, I had a, a few scripts. I had six short film scripts. And then I had, um, I had started a book, three books, actually. Um, but I did still didn't know what I wanted to do, because they train you in all these different mediums. Yeah. And then you you think you know what you're going to do. And then all of a sudden, life just kind of shows you uh, what you're made of. And so when COVID came along, when I finished my master's degree in, uh, or when I finished my bachelor's in 2019, I was just like, well, crap. So I had to continue working. We couldn't move anywhere. The you know, states were shut down. I ended up losing my job at this time. And I had already started the master's program. So I decided to focus and I finished that. And, um, and so then I was faced with, you know, my next big obstacle outside of choosing to be a writer after not writing for so long 
was how the hell do I find industry where I'm at? Because I'm I'm located in Biloxi, Mississippi. Yeah. Not a whole lot of industry down here. There, yeah. There's blue collar working people down here. They yeah. they they run trackos, backos, and four wheelers all over the place. I mean, if you want to work down here, you're looking at hotels, casinos, restaurants. Uh, I mean, the Uber scene's kind of big, yeah. but I don't I don't I don't I don't prefer that because it's just not safe. I don't I don't agree with the business model. <laughs> um, and then there was the military, which of course I've always had weight issues, so that was never an option. So I had to I had to continue finding. So I I went into an internship program, which I found uh, through a website that you that gives you access to job boards mm-hmm. based out of all the all the different locations where they have industry. And I, I picked up my first internship, uh, Smart Media LLC, which is run by Nicholas Tana. Um, who has a, a a comic book coming out that I had the pleasure of of working on uh, and consulting a narrative and and helping it get put together, uh, and, and it's called um, E Junkie. It's being published by Simon and Schuster, Simon and Schuster, and Scout Comics. Uh, first, for, I believe it just actually came out not too long ago. But that was that was kind of my first industry experience. I got to read a bunch of scripts. I got to make notations. I got to feel kind of what it's like to be on a team and inside yeah. that and i made that opportunity happen by going out there and looking at it yeah um and then i had to continue that so um i finally got picked up in in the comics industry by this gentleman that i had been following since 2017 his name was anthony moore it was a small press company called limitless comics and i guess he was following me on facebook saw what i was posting and uh decided to offer me my first editing job that editing job is actually really profound because uh karen sadie darbo who co-created blade's daughter for marvel this past year was one of the cover artists on that project Mm -hmm. and i thought that was so cool um so that was my first that was my first uh job in comics industry was independent comics and then after that i kind of fell back in love with comics i started reading comics again i started going to my local comic shops and kind of rediscovering this this passion and and so that's when i decided that comics was the medium that i was gonna i was gonna be the mainstay of because uh as my internship went on for about eight months there was a period of time where i wasn't putting in as much effort because i was doing all this other stuff and i was trying to figure it out and nicholas had called me it was just like hey man like uh is everything okay what's going on and we kind of had a conversation about uh, what had been going on with me personally and then professionally. And he just gave me some advice, uh, industry advice. And that was, you know, if, if you're going to do this for real, you have to learn how to juggle, but before you can do that, you have to master. It is what you want to do first. And I took that to heart really, really, really seriously. Um, so I just, I just stuck with comics, like all my, all my, all my big plans for moving to LA or New York and, and pursuing a career in screenwriting, writing for television and writing movies, which was originally something that I wanted to do. After COVID, the the p- political scene just kind of changed those states. And I don't know what happened to the economy, but rent is just, God, it's, it's so, it's so high. Really? Yeah. It's like happening rent. everywhere. Cause it's like, a new, it's same, same in New York. It was, there was a, a small period where it was like really low. <laughs> And then, uh, and then like it the jumped right up. Half, right? It's been, yeah, it's been crazy. It's crazy when you when you when you look at stuff in in LA. The the cheapest you can find is eighteen, and that's not even in a great area. Yeah, 
I mean, when you start looking at, at the the crime ratios and because of COVID and the lockdowns and stuff, all that stuff went up. Yeah. Um, so it, it was just like, I got a family, like I'm a father of four. Okay. Uh, my son lives with me. I have, I have three kids with my ex-wife who I get every other weekend. So I'm a father. I can't miss any of their life. I can't yeah. bring him into a dangerous situation. If I'm not going to be able to make enough money where I'm at doing what I love so that I can bring my kids to me during the summer when I want to see them, you know, to make the the career work, then I just, I'd end up being unhappy. Yeah. And so I just kind of run that simulated in my head. And I was just like, I got to bring industry to me yeah. and um, it, it's worked out. It's, it's been hard. You stay diligent. But um, since then I've, I've joined the, the comic books uh, editors Alliance, which is on Facebook, yeah. great group of folks. Yeah. It's run by Steve Cooley. Uh, a bunch of other great people are in there. Rick Arthur, people who've worked in there, uh, for Marvel and DC and people who are current editors for, for companies like Mad Cave Studios, um, Dark Horse and, and all the other small presses out there as well. They're a part of those groups. Um, so that, that that was a way to connect in the industry. I, I, I ended up furthering my education by uh, taking comics experience courses through comicsexperience.com. It's ran by uh, Andy Schmidt. For those of you who don't know, he wrote you know uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Transformers video game that came out a while back. And uh, he started that comics experience you know, a long time ago, uh, right after he, he left DC. And he was kind of faced with the same thing. Like, I, I have a family now. Like, I can't just be flying off to LA and New York all the time. Yeah. And he's based out of Kentucky. But I took the intro for writings course. And so um, I, I learned a lot about writing and editing from him. And then I took a Jim Higgins course. And he was, he was an editor, a featured editor at DC. Um, and we did one-on-one -on -one Zoom sessions with him, and that that increased my my pedigree. And it wasn't until I started my own podcast that I really got an inside look at comics as a business. Yeah. And that's that's when I got picked up by Ink Marketing or Ink Studios uh, LLC. And uh, what we do, uh, what I do for them is is basically what I do for comics creators, which is we go through crowdfunding platforms of independent comic creators that are looking to get into comics but don't really have the the, the business savvy that the, the the business etiquette that they need to thrive in the marketplace and we help them crowdfund their book to maximize like visibility and profit so they can get the most out of it so they can continue to do it because comics is a D, D, dyi medium and yeah. it's it's been going down uh the last couple of years even though it had spikes up uh during the COVID shutdowns because uh, people were at home more often. They had more money and yeah. they didn't have nothing to do. So they were reading comic books. Yeah. Kickstarter blew up and all that. So that's that's basically my background and my pedigree. Yeah. Well, the things I'm working on now are all small press. Uh, what I hope to accomplish is publish through uh, a few traditional outlets and then start actually regularly going to shows because it's not until you actually go to uh comic cons and small shows that you really start to network and building your network is is viably important to your yeah. business um yeah. that's how i picked up austin st john as a client for our company was i met him in st tammany uh great guy he's got a comic book coming out it's called redemption 2 uh it's on kickstarter uh the the pre-launch is on kickstarter now but i would have never made that connection had i'd never gone to a show and had the courage to show up and, you know, geek out and talk to people, see what, you know, their goals are. And it gives you an idea to, uh, it gives you a, a, a live simulation to kind of study the marketplace 
find out what's going on. It kind of tells you uh, what stories are popular today. So if you're, you know, like you're writing something, like I, I, I started writing Wild Oni in 2020. Uh, it's about to drop on Kickstarter. And what I've noticed in the last two years is that Japanese stuff has been getting super popular. I mean, you got TMNT, The Last Ronin coming yeah. out. Uh, Frank Miller announced the return of his Ronin series. There's a bunch of independent uh, writers who had released previous Ronin books. Um, if you do a if you do a Google search of Wild Oni and like nobody has that name, so good S- good SEO on me. And then um, I got a bunch of independent people with small part, small press who has published a bunch of, you know, independent uh, Wild Oni and, or not Wild Oni, but a bunch of different types of supernatural stories surrounding samurais and Onis and Oni hunting. And uh, like uh, Jean-Paul de Jong's book uh, through, I think it's Blackberry Comics. He, he has a big one. Um, so it's, that's that's basically the background and, and kind of how I came into writing comics and my journey from since leaving school and what I've had to what I've had to overcome. I'd like to say that I had that support and stuff, but I had to figure it out because the deaths in my family kind of were super big obstacles in my writing journey. And nobody nobody out there talks about how detriment your your personal position in life, how it affects your creative journey because creatively you're pulling you're pulling giant worlds and you're creating characters it is a very exhaustive process to expend all these all the all this brain power and all these synapses and and expenditure of all your like nerve endings to put into your hand while you're thinking about all these different intricate and dynamic ways to tell a story, use characters, you're killing people. When you kill someone in your story, you kind of feel that pain because you're drawing pain from real life concept or real life situations. And while other people treats it as escapism, there's some grounded truth in these stories that people tell, even when it is escapism, because you have to experience something in the story. And the only way to do that is the way that you see people portraying characters in television and movies. And that is you have to draw from an experience to, to raise that emotion to the surface. If you want people to cry during the scene, you got to tell us why it's so important beforehand. And then when you build up to that scene, that's when the tears roll in. If the tears don't roll in, then you didn't do a good job of, of building up those events to that one moment, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. So, so, that's yeah, a lot of great stuff. I, like several <laughs> spots. Like I want to, I got to ask follow up on that. And then, oh, I know I got to ask follow up on that. But no, I think you, you do bring a really good point about, I think, um, you know, some of the creative process and I think why, you know, good or bad, like a lot of times like tragedy, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I guess, food for writing because you can really pull from emotions that, yeah. that you, you know, it's hard, it's a little bit harder to fake that. Um, not that you can't. But, you know, I even think myself, like of, of some of the things that, that um, it, you know, I think there were a couple of stories that I've had, like, you know, kind of that, that when I sat down and really thought about it, I was like, oh, this is really tied to this childhood experience or this, this tragedy that I went through. And that's why, you know, part why it's, it's so strong, I guess, in certain ways, but also like where you, 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 you can draw from that. And I think it is harder. maybe, you know, if you, if you don't have some struggles or hardships sometimes to, to pull that, not again, not that you can't, but, um, but no, right. it, it's really, 
really interesting. Um, so now I guess when it comes to editing for you, like, did, were you just kind of thrown into it or did you, cause like, did, did you have a mind of when you were doing your internship, like, okay, you know, this is the area or was it, did it, did it kind of fall in your lap? Um, the editing job itself, it did, it did fall in my lap, but you know, I don't feel that way per se, because I did, I mean, there was, there was a, a, a prerequisite to, I guess, that happening. So one was I followed this guy's work for you know several years. I had had several conversations with him over time. Um, and I had backed a lot of his projects and I had shared his social media posts. So there was, there was, I guess, a lot of sense of appreciation. And then I guess when um, you notice someone is getting into the medium and, you know, uh, you're looking to increase your your hand as a small press company. You want to find people who have the tools who can elevate either your business or your product. Yeah. And so I guess him following, you know, me posting all my accolades, like you know, winning uh, visual advance uh, to to class storytelling. Uh, I made a I think it was a one minute and six second uh, stop motion film which i did all the vo for uh, I, I printed out eight by ten photos of like the front of my mom's porch i used uh an electra and a namor action figure to illustrate the story and uh and then i edited it all together and that was basically uh, one of my uh one of my capstone projects and then before that i had one um i, I was awarded the comedy and tragedy for some of the scripts that I had written in that first year in my bachelor's degree program, which I didn't expect on winning anything. I've always been one of those people who are like, I don't win. I don't win nothing. <laughs> I just show up and do stuff. Like, <laughs> um, so I was su super happy, but, but posting that type of experience and then posting the, Hey, look at this. And then talking about the industry and, uh, and I guess that caught his attention and he just kind of threw that, threw that first job in my lap. And that was kind of, where I got now the the internship that's something I look for. Okay, yeah. Um, but it really it really started um, thanks to Bethany Thanos. Uh, you can laugh at that name. That's that's a real last name. Like <laughs> she was the best teacher ever. Uh, she she was an instructor at Full Sail. Still is. Um, I had the pleasure of guest speaking one of her classes this past year, or I believe it was last fall. Um, but she had pointed out to me because we have assignments at full sale where uh, the full sale class becomes the, the teachers for certain projects. And what I mean by that is, is that everybody's given the same project and then either certain people are chosen or the entire class gets an opportunity to give you feedback as if they were the instructor. It is a uh, open critical thinking and positive criticism exercise that is positively promoted at the school and is part of their core curriculum uh, for the positive feedback pyramid. Um, it is super awesome. It's, it's very helpful. And it allowed me to look through the creative lens of other students and give them real honest analysis. And analysis and research have been a skill of mine, I guess, since I was a kid. Because I would look at things and I would observe it, I would analyze it, and I would ask questions, and I would I would internalize all of this. Like nobody knew that I was observing 
watching and analyzing. You, be, you Nobody has to become an expert with a piece of paper to become an expert. If you expose yourself to 100 hours sitting in a courtroom, listening to lawyers go back and forth, eventually you're going to learn something about those cases. And once you know enough, you don't have to take a bar to be a good lawyer. You just have to know what it is that lawyers do that make them good lawyers. You know what I'm saying? Um, we can reference the show Suits uh, if you want to <laughs> as an example, yeah. uh, because he just he just like portrayed a really good uh, frontal uh, frontal lobe uh, uh, memory memorization, like a superpower in a comic book. But not everybody could do that. And so she pointed it out to me because, you know, these posts are supposed to be short and concise, but mine were always long and very informative. And it tackled multiple analysis from various angles. And she just like, have you ever thought about becoming a develop, a developmental editor? And that's the first time I ever heard the term because I've always heard the term editor, right? That's all anybody ever hears. Yeah. They don't tell you about assistant editors. They don't tell you about group editors. They don't tell you about developmental editors. They don't tell you about proofreader, proofreading editors. They don't tell you about line editing. All those are different. All those are different. They're all different. Line editing is is super super subjective and and very critical. You have to read every every word, every letter, line by line by line by line. But while you're doing that, you also have to look at associations and patterns. Eventually, if you stare at someone's writing long enough, you'll find the words that they use the most, and you you'll make notes based on that because that's just it's it's redundant language. Developmental editing is basically chopping everything up, and and putting it back together and suggesting it go together in a way that tells a dynamic and thorough story that leaves no no stone unturned as far as arcing goes mm -hmm. um so it i mean it could be a story that starts at the end and you have to walk it back and explain how we got there that's a that's a pause that's a very popular way to tell stories these days it really depends because those are also obscured ways. And so what you're writing for is the information in the story. So that was kind of the, 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 the beginning of the journey. And then I started looking into developmental editing and then what people get paid. Um, and we'll, you'll probably ask this question and we'll get into that when you do, but not a lot of people want to pay for that type of editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and and I'll tell you why when you get to it. But yeah. but yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the where it really, really started as far as being an editor. She she turned me on to it because she saw that that my potential in my analytical skills were there to be that. So now when it comes to like I guess I guess when you're looking at new writers um or new, you know, what what are some errors that you see right off the bat or some common things that you that you see? Not even, not even errors, but what are some common common thing, things that you do see from, coming from especially new writers that you you find you have to spend a lot of time on as an editor? Detail. Um, just too the much day, or too little? Uh, sometimes it could be both. Yeah. Um, just enough detail is, is what you want to be in. Yeah. Too much detail might confuse an artist um in yeah. independent comics uh what's different between independent comics mainly and mainstream comics is that independent comics deals with a plethora of language barriers and so when you present artists from croatia india south america 
or even 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 parts of of Eastern Asia, like like the islands, uh, Malaysia. I think think I think that's where one of one of the artists that I was working for uh, a while back, or who I was working for a writer on, uh, was from. There's a language barrier there, so you can't put too much intricacy into those panels as as dynamic as you want them to be. Um, for writers, especially for me, in the beginning, over <laughs> over detailish over detailistic panel action descriptions were my weak point. You can't control the narrative so much that you completely take the creative process away from the uh, away from the artists. They have to have their own adaptive input because if they don't, then artists become lazy because they don't become excited for the story anymore. And then once they get to that point, communication starts to break down. When communication starts to break down, the project is dead because, I mean, especially for those who don't choose to have an editor because you have no mediator there to mend fences. Yeah. And once the, once, once that happens, you, you've lost money. You have to find a, a new artist. You might have the same problems if you don't realize that the problem is in fact you. Um, and it's not a bad, it's not a negative thing. It's not, I don't mean it to be a negative connotation and, but writers who aren't, who are just breaking into the industry, aren't aware of those types of mistakes unless, you know, you know, their idol breaks into their front door and be like, yeah, that's real. That's a real thing. You need to pay attention to that. Um, and that, that hardly ever happens because we, we treat idols like, you know, we treat, we would, we, everybody treats their idol when they meet them for the first time, like they're sitting on some type of pedestal, yeah. but they're really just people like you and me. Yeah. No. So it's re it's really hard. I, I find that f first writers um, tell good stories, but they're over detailistic yeah. um, too many panels on a page. That that's a big one. Yeah. Um, the ideal page uh, panel length on, on one page if you're focusing on action specifically is four to six, maybe pushing seven. If you're doing a double page layout, you can tell a really big action scene, even with, with fewer than six panels, yeah. because you want to, you could still tell a story, but you also want them to like to see the action. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be an Alan Moore and put 12 panels on one page to show us opening a door. Right. Yeah. That's always been the biggest example. That was the biggest example used when I was in college was Alan Moore's uh, depiction of Rorschach opening a door. And you see like him standing in front of the door. Then we see the door and then we see his hand reach out and then his hand gets closer, closer. And then he finally gets on the door. He turns it and he finally walks inside. It's, it's like that type of writing is, is suspense writing he's building up to a point yeah. but writers don't know how to disseminate those types of those types of panel usages to tell that story yeah. and in those situations you can tell artists that's exactly how you want it to look but the reality is that whatever you turn in as far as script goes your artist is ultimately going to have something slightly different yeah and on occasion your artist might agree with your entire page layout and give you a layout that's exactly what you wanted. And yeah. kudos when that happens. I love it when that happens. But it's not always the case. Yeah. Um, narratively wise, uh, I see a lot of passive character usage. And what I mean by that is the surrounding landscape that the character lives in 
whether it's in Italy in 1818 or in Greece in 460 AD or 10,000 years ago in North America as a native, uh, even as a kaiju in 2050 Japan, things happen to the character and the character has to react. Well, what does the character want? Well, he's got to survive. I'm like, that's not a story. That's entertaining. Yeah. But I can go get that at a comedy house. Yeah. Especially in New York when they're like asking, asking the people in the audience, give us, give us a setting. Yeah. You know, like give us a situation. Yeah. Like that's they're they're passively giving you entertainment because you're the one controlling it. You're the writer, you control the narrative. Your character needs to have a want. There needs to be an obstacle. There has to be a goal. You have to know if he's going to get it or not. Yeah. And you can you can just totally take it away from him. Yeah. Uh, you can kill him at the end. Do what you want, but it, it has to be him him making those choices, not him making choices to things happening to him. Yeah. And sometimes in a story, the combination of passive and active character play along really nice. So that creates something really beautiful because the character can't always be in control of his actions. Mm -hmm. However, it was always embedded into me that the greatest stories told are the ones that the characters, like the problems that the characters start themselves. And if you read Spider-Man, Spider-Man is a perfect example of what that means because a majority of the time, Spider-Man has created most of his villains. Mm -hmm. If when he's not being a villain to himself and standing in his own way, yeah. you know, I mean, the Sandman was a really good example. Uh, they use that. They tried to use that in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man series, but it ended up backfiring up until the third Spider-Man and the new Tom Holland series <laughs> where they kind of brought him back. And it's like, yeah, I would have never been the Sandman if I didn't kill your uncle and you didn't try to chase me down and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the professor, both professors, the lizard man and Doc Ock. I mean, those were all people that 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 spider-man helped yeah i mean just to some degree your, your characters have to have to feel real yeah. and a lot of a lot of what i see in independent comics is that during character creation that's the main focus yeah and then like you'll see these settings and there's no authenticity to the background of it yeah. now unless you're writing in a manga style manga doesn't focus on settings they're all emotion. They, they, they function on four acts, not three. Western writing focuses only on three acts as far as story goes. And so they don't really care much about, about, about setting. And it's only important. Setting is used to mark like story points yeah. when you get to a certain part of the character arc. Because most of manga writing is character writing. It's character-driven storytelling. And that's why it succeeds so much than Western storytelling. It's a conversation for a different day. But that, yeah. that's just my my analysis of it. If you yeah. ever read um, oh my goodness. Angel. Battle Angel. Oh. Alita Battle Angel. Originally just called Battle Angel. Yeah. If you ever read that comic, you notice that in the action scenes, there's not a whole lot of surrounding going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when when characters and character heads are screaming at each other, it's usually just like very white, vibrant backgrounds with lots of different types of text effects or uh, different SFX or maybe some uh, motion graphics in there, you know, like like hash marks that, you know, big fists coming towards you. So the air is kind of like you can see the air around it building up and swishes it there. They want you to focus on the action. 
that's that's intentional yeah so um a lot of the times i see western comics they go all in with with scenery and that's that's super hard to do in a script because you have to be so detailed and and the way that people used to write comic scripts back in the day it, it because they had libraries and not the internet they had to be that detailistic and so they had to put in like cutouts in here and newspaper clippings if they could find them uh, magazine clippings of uh, if you've ever watched a comic documentary they talk about it it sucked it sucked nowadays i i personally use hyperlinks for everything and pinterest is my number one go-to source for okay. like hey i kind of want it to you know look like this or look like that yeah. because pinterest is just a plethora of creative yeah creative like it's it's a huge creative pool that you could just dive into yeah um but that those those are the mainstay mistakes i see the biggest one though uh for comics is really dialogue yeah dialogue um not more than really 240 260 words per page yeah Uh, about 20 to 25 words per balloon Uh, like you you've seen examples where there's more and there are you know rules that you can break but you got to know the rules first. Yeah. So you don't want your stories to be so overly complicated that words take up the art because you want a balance between story and art. Yeah. That's how you get nominated for Ringo awards other than, you know, having been in the industry long enough that everybody loves you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But that's a political thing. Right. But, but if you, if you do have that good balance of, of words and images, because it's not so much, it's not such a a, a a feat of accomplishment to read the story. And it's also not such a, an annoyance to look at the page. Yeah. I read I read comics twice. I read them first for the story. I, I, I see the art, but I'm not seeing the art. Yeah. I'm reading the story. If something in the story stands out about something in the image, I'll look at it. And then I'll go yeah. back and then I'll enjoy the art. Yeah. Because I don't want the burden of... of of having to worry about the narrative and what's going on. I want to see on the page. Yeah. Like I want, I want to enjoy the art. Um, yeah. So, so I re- I read comics twice. Yeah. It sounds like a headache, but it, you, you stress. No. It's like really, really nice. No, you, it's funny. You mentioned that I was on a flight the other uh, couple, um, uh, um, few weeks ago and that's exactly what i did like i started reading and I, I find that i always do that when i read comics is i tend to really focus on the words and not focus on the art and i kind of did that i was like okay i went through it once and then i was like all right well got a couple hours left let me go through this again and really appreciate the art now that i know you know i know what the story is um but yeah, you bring up some great points there uh the yeah like the one of the best things i've ever heard as far as that helped my writing was like what does the character want like it's such an important question. I think it made my writing that much better. Um, and I think it, it, I found that there are secondary and tertiary characters that became more alive because they had a want. And so when I was writing for them, I'm writing for that. Even if even if they don't get that much time or that much dialogue, you're writing with that in mind. Um, and so it fleshes out characters and makes things much more like three dimensional. Um, Absolutely. And it's funny that also mentioning that made me realize because I saw Oppenheimer this weekend and I was trying to figure out what I what was I like it was a great movie, you know, it's like done by a master, but there were some things I didn't love about the pacing. And I think that's what it was. Is, did you have you seen it yet? I have not, but okay. I've I've known enough about the history yeah. to know so, how much of an asshole that guy was yeah. creating. <laughs> so the, the first the first third of the movie was that like you didn't know what he wanted. There wasn't a direction. And so it it felt like it was meandering along. It was just like, okay, here's this guy's life. 
all right, we're seeing them do this and we're seeing them do that. And it's not until certain things happen that which happen way later than you it typically would that there's an actual movie there. But a lot of it is that it's like, he doesn't they, like, we don't know what he wants. There is no direction. It's just happening. And I think some of it was, there were artistic decisions there, but then it, it felt like a story that wasn't quite like there wasn't a narrative until like, you know, a, a solid third into a three hour movie. Was there, <laughs> was there any voiceover? Not really. Not that I no. Not that I recall. Okay. Yeah. So um, a lot so of flashbacks. It was, it was probably yeah. So it was exposition is okay. You, you see this in comics too. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest art or art uh, edits that I had made suggestions on, and uh, in a new book that I've I've been working on uh, with artist LM uh, LM Johnson. He's the creator of Sweet Pea. Was uh, he had this beautiful. He had this beautiful like uh, flashback scene, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was grayscale. And then I I just I looked at it for a moment. And I was like, I wonder if we if we put a different tone in the flashback. No, it wasn't grayscale. It was uh, what's that, man? What's that? Uh, it's like it's like a golden auburn color, like sepia or something. Yeah, like se- yeah, yeah, sepia. sepia so yeah, sepia. So it was this beautiful sepia flashback. Um, and I was like, what if at the end of the flashback, some of the color starts to come out just in places where we want the art, where we want the reader to focus on. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'll try that. And it, it's his favorite page. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's just from looking at it from a different perspective. Yeah. And it's just those little tiny things. Yeah. But it, it doesn't focus on exposition. Exposition is it could be a monster and that's where writers really just want to dump information yeah. on people. Cause not because they, they want to, but because they're so excited about what they're writing yeah. about, they feel as though they need to, they need to tell it like they yeah. got to tell it. Now that's the compulsory component in your brain that when, when you meet someone who doesn't know how to shut their mouth, they just don't know how to control that part of their brain. Yeah. It's not really their fault. It's, it's literally a part of the brain that wants to that wants to dump out all this information because it has yeah. to like the neurons are firing it's ready to go synapses boom and yeah. it just comes out um and they have to because if they don't then um it, it affects them neurologically and starts to increase like like hormones like on a chemical level like a biochemical yeah. level it really screws with them physically um yeah. and so i find that writers have this issue too yeah. but that is what your secondary characters are for when you play Skyrim and you go to Homestead for the first time before, you know, or after, after the dragon scares you off right before you go kick the dragon's ass and then get your ass kicked again, you, uh, you go to that first town, right? The store goods guy, the armor, uh, the armor lady, uh, the king, the king's uh, really weird elf looking bodyguard. They all have something to say. They're all, they all have exposition. If you, if you don't know how to dump it in there, create a character that does. They yeah. have it. It makes your landscape look robust and, yeah. and 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 engaging and alive. And if someone can feel like it's alive, then you know you have a you have a you have a good thing going in your narrative where it's not like look at all this uh, exposition. Look at all this exposition. If you look yeah. at the last Ronin, um, Mikey's flashback scenes take place split up in intricate parts of the story like in part one there's a little segment in part two I believe there's nothing in part two 
but in part three and four, when he finally explains to April and his daughter, or no, it's either April or her daughter, why or where he went after the explosion happened and killed his brothers, uh, he went back to Japan. I didn't like the art flashback for that scene, but I understood where they where they paced it and why. Because because we know Mikey's tr- suffering tra- traumatically from the loss of his brothers. Um, we know that he wants revenge. We know he's going to get it. What he doesn't know is that April's alive. What he doesn't know is that he has options for life, right? Yeah. Because at first, in the first half of the book, it's just, I don't, I'm sorry if you haven't read it and I'm spoiling shit for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's funny. I, I've, I, I've had this stuff spoiled. I have it. It's like the next book I will be, I will read. I have it on my like desk as the next, probably, it'll probably be my, my next flight. <laughs> like, this is just the comparison and analysis. Yeah, I, I I'm, not, I'm yeah. not dropping any heavy Yeah, don't worry details. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no worries. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I'll just stop there. But, but yeah. if you look at it, the pacing, bringing it back around to what you were saying, the pacing, those flashbacks in the book were ideal to and and confined to idle exposition because when you become a a storyteller is when you realize that you have the ability to introduce information where you want it to go most people just write the first draft and they're like good send it Uh, we're like no writing is rewriting my friend come back here let's look at this again let's break this up here let's break this up here if you want to know how shows like scandal and spartacus and game of thrones had those really meaty narrative plot points that pissed you off or made you just oh i cannot believe the imp just killed his dad on the toilet with a crossbow Mm -hmm. It took hours for them to lay out the story, look at what needed to happen, and they they planned for that to be there. Yeah. Just like a business plan plans to make this much money, they're implementing a strategy that's going to make them that much money. You need to treat your narratives the same way. Yeah. Uh, beginning beginning writers don't know how to do that. They're still learning, which is okay. That's why you know the short story industry is so robust because <laughs> you you have the opportunity to make small narratives and you yeah. can you can use those techniques and that's what they are they're techniques they're story techniques you're withholding information you're suspending disbelief until you throw that information out there and you let the the reader or the audience who's watching think they know what they know until they don't yeah. And then you just you flip everything upside down and start again. Game of Thrones was a great example of of how they implemented the story, uh, which is an unfair comparison because a lot of the stuff in the books didn't make it into the show. Yeah, um, especially after I think what season four or five. Yeah, season four with, uh, yeah, I think it was four or five. You're right. They're like it completely shifted. From- yeah, because he was he was still writing the books. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, hey, we ran out of books. So, and, that, uh, and by that point, they were kind of checked out. It seemed. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, Starbucks coffee. We'll say no yeah, more. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's you're totally right. Pacing, pacing is a big thing, yeah. um, and that comes, that comes, that comes. I guess, I guess you could segue this into getting a good editor. Because- yeah. Well, so that's going to be my next. That's my next question, and it's kind of loaded. So you mentioned you you mentioned the pay. So we're going to kind of you know I want to touch on a few things. So first is, you know, one is a finding a good editor, right? So how do you go about finding an editor? Editor. But then the second thing is. The val like I guess because I realized like very early on right like I didn't when I was thinking about doing this whole process like I thought about an editor um but but I didn't realize how much it would cost and but I also didn't realize how valuable it, valuable it is yeah. so I guess just talk speak a little bit to 
I guess why it costs so much and just the amount of work that goes into it and why it is invaluable, even for like a, you know, look, if you're doing like a small comic, your own thing, and you're just going to, you want to have family and friends, you don't need an editor necessarily. But if you're trying to make something that's polished and professional, I, 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 I'm sold. And I think it's really, really important. Um, You know, if you're going to run a Kickstarter, then build that into your, you know, your campaign, like you, you should have an editor. So I guess maybe talk about like just the value of an editor and how, how to find one and, and why is it worth like the, the cost that, you know, that, that can be substantial depending on how how deep into the process the editor is so um so let's tackle it from this perspective and comic books just comic books yeah finding an editor finding an editor in comic books is super simple there are hundreds of groups out there there are hundreds of people who have thousands of websites um, you could even be so bold as to buy a comic book from your local comic store, and you could even target a small press book, look at who the editor is, find them on Twitter and social media, and then DM them. That's yeah. that's how easy it is. And if you show up with money, no one's going to turn you <laughs> away. Yeah. It's just what is the right amount, right? Yeah. Um, professionally speaking. And this is professional. I do not include independent comics because that is a rabbit hole we'll dive into in a second. Professionally, I have a master's degree, which I need to stop sharing so much because I've been told it's it's getting me nowhere and I've been overqualified for a lot. Um, but professionally, the pricing is 50, 25 to 50 an hour or 100, 150 per page. Yeah. Now that sounds excruciating and exorbitant exorbitant to anybody looking to spend. Um, But if you think about it, um, I believe Marvel and DC pay their editors somewhere in the lines of, and we're talking editor in chiefs, not, not assistant editors or group editors or um, part-time editors on a different level of, with a different title that I'm not sure exists or not Um, just their top editors, right? make anywhere between 60 to 80,000 a year. But, you know, small press, even, even scout, they don't, they don't pay that much. Yeah. They don't pay that much. There's, there's no way. There's no way they pay that much. And even if they paid 40, I mean, that's great for them, but there are far more comic book editors outside of publishers than there are publishers. Yeah. And that is, that is a, that's a crazy number to consider. Yeah. They're like, Mike, how do you know? Well, I've spent four, almost four years in comics enough to know that there may be over a couple hundred publishers in the United States that mainly focus on it. And you have to think there's one, one particular head honcho editor for every one of those. Yeah. Now, if we're, if we're going to pull from numbers in independent comics, we're looking at 150 to 200 books per month. Yeah. Not all of them have editors, but if they did, you're talking about on a monthly basis, there are more editors working on books than there are major and small press publishers in the entire country. Mm-hmm. That that is that is a crazy number. So, well, w- what if I can't afford that? Well, then you can do the next best thing and you become your own editor. The problem with that is, is that you're going to have to teach yourself what to look for what not to look for. You're going to have to treat yourself like your own worst enemy, yeah. especially when you go look at your script, which means you're going to have to understand how to crush confirmation bias within your own writing. Yeah. And you're going to have to learn how to proofread, which is the biggest thing for publishing because no one wants to sit there 
and read misspelled words or words spelled backwards or or you're screwing with people's dyslexia at that point if you don't double check it before you go to publish. And once you go to publish, if you've printed, you've just wasted money and now you have to go fix it. If you've put your comic up on 13 different platforms where you can sell digitally, you have to go replace those EPUB or those PDF files yeah. for, for, for digital download now, which costs you what? It costs you hours, hours in work that you could be spending on a new project or collaborating or hiring someone else for the next big thing. Because if you're a comic book, writer or creator or you're running small press and independent comics you can't spend any more or less time on any one thing than it takes away from getting to the next project like you work yeah. on one book you roll it out you do the marketing however you choose to go after that then bam then the next thing you have to have something in the pipeline at all times because you're not marvel you're not dc you're not dark horse you don't have marketing uh funds you're not backed by disney your books aren't out in you know theaters or on hbo on streaming right so you're not getting any residuals there's nothing coming in but whatever work you're putting out there um so if you can't afford those prices, which are exorbitant, because most good, decent artists cost eighty to one hundred dollars a page, and that's just art. Some of them offer, you know, inking or uh, grayscaling, and then uh, some of them offer flatting and also color at a hundred dollars a page, which you can find. But is it going to be quality? Yeah. And also, if, as a creator, what? what people don't think about, which is what an, a good editor does, what style of art do you want presented in your, in your story? Like what, what type of art style? If you go read a Rick and Morty comic, highly different from reading a, an Iron Man comic that Marvel's putting out. Yeah. You know, the deep, the, the art isn't, you know, as detailistic color theory on spectrum is way off because Rick and Morty is an absurd overgrossly, uh, highly popular adult, adult animation comic and and they tell different stories than they do in iron man where it's more grounded in scientific theories and and science fiction and it has to have authenticity when talking about things uh that he creates or events that are happening like like some type of space propulsion system you know like something something of that nature um but it's it's money well spent and it's because we look at your writing we we make sure that your script's 100% ready to go. We make sure you're proofreading. I mean, once you once you get done with the script, two things happen. Your script is done for the artist. It can go off. You can start, well, actually three things happen. Once you're done with the script, you can start shopping for covers. Once you're done with the script, you can send it off to art to start getting concept pages in, roughs. We're talking just roughs, just basic circles, squares, shapes, and layouts. We, we don't want anything finalized yet. That's that's where we get in the lines and then you do inking and then you get to take all the dialogue and then you get to make your your lettering script. Most independent publishers don't use lettering scripts. They just they give the script to the letterer. But if you if you take all your panels and then just leave the dialogue in there, all your all your letterer has to do is copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. It makes their job so much easier. Yeah. No, you wouldn't know that unless you hired a good editor. Yeah. A good editor keeps you on on track. You have to you have to believe in your deadline. If you don't believe in your deadline, you are not going. You're not going to get there. You'll yeah. you'll just be like, oh well, we can do it next week. No, you wanted it done now. We're doing it now. They're your timekeepers. They help you communicate with your team. If you have a troubleshooting issue. 
Um, they help you get past that. Perfect example. I had a I had a gentleman. We no longer work together. I finished his work though. I did 54 pages. Um, it was in horrible shape. It wasn't proofread. It was already done. Um, and the biggest the biggest mistake he made, and if he if he would have had a good editor from the start, he would have known this. Always get your your files, your hard copy files from your artist. If an artist is not willing to give you hard copy files for doing your project and charge you for them, that is not an artist you want to keep around. That is industry standard. And the reason I say that is, and this is before you get lettering pages back, because if you don't, if your letterer makes a mistake and you want to hire someone else and you don't have hard copy images with the finished pages without letters, you will have to do something excruciating. You'll have to find an artist who can also letter and they're going to have to use Photoshop or some other prof software program and cut out all those letters in the finished pages. And they're going to have to put new bubbles in there. Mm. They have to go back exactly where they were and they have to fit your, your story back in there correctly. Yeah. And, and from a, from a writer's standpoint and editor standpoint, that's double work for them. So they get yeah. double paid. So that's an excruciating and financially costly mistake. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't know that unless you had a good editor who's been through that experience. Yeah. Um, editors save you money. Editors also help you come up with the plan. Yeah. Um, I like to tell my clients that when you hire me, you get publisher level editing because I was, I, I feel that even though my time at comics experience was short, uh, even though the class with Jim Higgins was only four weeks, uh, even though I only spent six years in school learning this stuff, uh, one of my teachers was Roland Mann, who did Catwoman back in the day. He does. He owns Silverline Comics now. I feel like I have enough of the pedigree to know and enough of the information inside the publishing industry and how things work and how marketing works from my experience with Ink Publishing or Ink uh, Ink Studios. That when you hire me, I'm going to give you the information you need to succeed. Yeah. I'm not going to let you fail. When you do that, you're going to spend nothing including extra time looking on TikTok, looking on YouTube. Um, you're not going to spend $15 on going to buy all these different types of books that are going to teach you all this stuff. I can do that for you. It saves you money, yeah. which is the biggest thing about having an editor. If you think that $150 a page for 22 pages is expensive, that, I mean, you get what you invest into. Yeah. If you're not ready to invest in yourself, then maybe this is a medium you don't want to work into. And then you should just, turn your stuff into prose and your only cost for art would be a cover. And then you can just self-publish. You can do that in 30 days when you do prose writing. Yeah. Prose writing is novella writing for those that don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, It's super simple. I did it just a week ago. I published a wild only themed uh, journal predicated on the philosophy of the three faces. And it has quotes from major legendary samurais and tacticians from the Middle Eastern time period in Japan. And I did that in two days, like literally two days. I have a proof in my office I got two days later. Mm -hmm. uh, the process is kind of painstaking. Self-publishing is, but it teaches you a lot about what the publishing industry goes into. Um, what I don't have from traditional publishing is um, size, dimension, and what goes into actually taking a book from the file size and you know, giving it to a printer that that's always been like kind of shady to me because the standard comic book page is constantly changing and in independent comics, there is a standard and they have templates, but it's all really about what kind of aesthetic you want to go to. So yeah. they, they focus on style. 
Um, they help you find a style. They help you find artists. They help you find all your creative talent. They should help you find. They help you through the script process, even if you're only in outlining stage. Yeah. Uh, I helped the gentleman in L.A. Um, the first year that I got picked up well, with the comic book company. I helped him outline six issues of his comic, and then he went straight to scripts, and we did the first script together. So he knows exactly where his score is going from issue one all the way to issue six. Mm-hmm can't speak about it because it's not published yet but that 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 level of editing yeah is is developmental editing and that's the most expensive kind and that's the one you want if you want just a proofreader to go through your script and fix all the grammatical stuff they're really only focusing on dialogue because everything else isn't gonna isn't gonna be seen except for the writers the the artist but if you want them to just proofread it then that's that's gonna run you three to five cents per word Okay. So if you know you're averaging 200 to 240 words per page, five cents times whatever the output of that is, if it's like twenty thousand, you're looking at two three hundred dollars yeah. per book for proofreading, which isn't yeah. everybody can afford that. Yeah, and most yeah. And and most times you can work out you know payment scales. Yeah. Like I'm I'm gonna do 15 pages, you pay me you know 150 bucks, I'll do the the rest of it, and then you finish it, you give them the finished product, they pay you. Yeah. I've always had that because I know in independent comics, especially people are trying to make it to the big leagues. They need those options in order to survive. Yeah. Now I've had some bad experiences where people don't want to pay or people have paid and uh, they get kind of nasty with you. And I just have, I just have that, that halfway point where like, if I did the work up till halfway and they pay me halfway, if, if things turn negative real fast, then I just have a policy where I just, you know, it's cool. I'll stop here. You'll stop there. We'll go our separate ways. And that, that protects you. That protects them. Yeah. Um, you you got to know where you're going in comics. If you do not, you'll end up, you'll end up spending a lot of money to learn from your mistakes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's cheaper than college. Yeah, <laughs> I could have I could have figured out a a, a hundred different ways to spend ninety seven thousand dollars. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> but uh, but it's just it's not worth it if yeah. you just if you just get a good editor. Yeah, um, and editing it yourself, I mean, it's great, and eventually you'll get good at it. But learning quickly takes time. Yeah, because you have to have redundancy in what you're looking at. If you don't have redundancy in what you're looking at. Then what you're really doing is you're 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 transposing something that you're seeing and you're comparing it to your work. And that's just not fair. Because yeah. what you're seeing is something that's finished and has been looked on by eyes who's been in the industry and marinated for 10 years, who know yeah. everything that you don't know. And you're just like, well, that kind of looks like what yeah. that looks like. So yeah, hey, we're good. That's no, that's that's called uh sitting on a rocket uh, duct tape to a chair. And that's not how you want to treat your projects. <laughs> well, I feel like you, even if you're a, um, even if you're an editor, like you probably, you need other eyes on your work. Um, I think because yeah. it's just that whole, like seeing the forest through the trees, you know, like even think of an analogy, like my whole, most of my career has been in fitness. And like, even as somebody who's a trainer, when I was training for competing for things competitively, I need trainers for that. Like, you know, I, even if I have the knowledge or the ability, like you just, you need the other pair of eyes on you. You need somebody else that is an expert and a professional to kind of guide you. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's invaluable. And it, yeah, a lot of times it's just hard to see the forest through the trees. It is, and it can be. And that's, that's what, that's what good editors uh, will help you. I mean, they're, they're, they get paid to guide you. That's, yeah. that's, that's what they get paid to do. So let me, so I guess, so 
we uh, we're going to talk a little about the strike um and some uh, stuff like that but we almost I, I think we're gonna have to set another time to another chat at some point um <laughs> so i'd like to talk about your work um because you were telling me you, you've spoken a little bit about your story and i know you have a kickstarter coming up so if you can tell um tell us tell me a little bit about about your story how it came about what it's about and about your campaign that's coming up oh man um wild oni was was I, I i just created it it's just out of nowhere i've always been a fan of ghostwriter uh it's one of my favorite characters because i'm a huge fan of duality i think everybody has everybody has something in them that isn't them that people don't see uh, and that's where we that's where we internalize all the pain that's where we internalize all our frustrations that's where we internalize all of our dreams and desires that's where we hide ourselves from those uh, it's where our insecurity leaks from. Uh, and the ghostwriter story is a very vulnerable, emotional story about a man who tried to save his dad and ended up getting screwed by the devil and had to serve him. Right. And then he spent a lot of his time in the Marvel universe before becoming this really cool cosmic character, um, getting back at the devil and, and, and doing his part to keep, you know, demonic forces at bay because he felt responsible for opening that can of worms. And so, uh, the project is called Wild Oni. Um, I did a lot of research because one of the biggest things in becoming, you know, a comic creator is what that what kind of story do I want to tell first? And, and I've always heard this: Hey, whatever you put out, that's what people are are gonna are gonna attribute you to every time they see your name pop up. So I was like, cool. So it's got to be something memorable. And I'm a huge fan of history. History is history is my thing. And in, in these day and age, uh, history's been slightly subjective and objective for a lot of people, uh, given the gravity of all the truth dropping uh, on the political landscape. So I was just like, I've always been drawn to samurai, samurais, the Bushido code. Uh, I was in Taekwondo when I was younger for anger management, uh, as opposed to taking medication, and it really helped calm me down. And so uh, I, I pulled from my strengths tragedy i've always subverted and conquered tragedy no matter what point in my life i was in i've conquered it so i wanted to tell a tragic story and so i found my character i found him through research his name is uh mori chica uh, i don't want to butcher his last name he comes from the the sopao clan and they had a small resurgence against uh toyotomi hideyoshi on the island of tsushima and what drew me to the story was i had just finished playing Ghost of Tsushima. <laughs> Incredible story. Uh, it was emotional. It was engaging. I love the fact that you can explore the entire island. Um, I, I know they spent quite a long time putting together that game as accurate as they possibly could. So it is a very historical uh, experience for me. And, and so I thought about it. I'm like, what's interesting about the Japanese culture? Because a lot of their story comes from political oppression and political uh political evolution i didn't want to tell a story from that because that's just too hard um, not not like difficult for the writer but that's just too hard on people to read um there are lots of tragedy that happened in the evolution of japan as a country from beginning all the way to the the uh the unification of tokyo even before it was kyoto um and so uh, I took this story and I created my own uh, mythos to it. Uh, the beginning of the mythos was uh, an Oni and the spirit of fire called the Salamander 
were fighting an ancient battle and they crashed on this island and this island was a meteor uh, embedded in this cave and for centuries there's been an order of ronin salamander uh, ronins are samurais that get kicked out of whatever family order serving the daimyo and they become ronin they become dismissed they're dishonored they can't see their families they can't live anywhere they become homeless that was their version of homeless in ancient japan you you became ronin and that was it if people talked to you they also became ronin they threw them out that was how they kept you out of society and so there was this clandestine group of monks who created this order of salamander and ronins flocked to it because it gave them home it gave them discipline and uh it's prefaced on this prophecy that one day the oni will rise and it does because Morichika finds himself in a situation where uh, he's on the brink of death. He gets dropped off in the forest um, because he failed to take Korea for the the uh, the shogun. Because Japan was going to war with Korea, they wanted they wanted the they wanted South Korea because they wanted to control the Korean Strait for trade, and and Japan needed that. Uh, what Japan didn't know is that China owned most of Korea or influenced most of Korea, and uh, that's why they never that's why they never conquered or pushed into the the Korean territory uh, too deep. They ended up getting pushed all the way out. That second time they failed, and that was Morichika's responsibility as as uh, one of the generals for his clan to go in and conquer these small territories to set up base camps. So when they would push forward. Um, they'd have a place to do it from instead of coming right off the beach like in Normandy and getting shot all the hell or chopped up. And so he failed. So the, the daimyo basically kills his family, leaves him for dead in the forest, and he and it just so happens to be near this cave, you know, uh, and he finds the meteor and he agrees to a whispering voice um, to uh, release him from his his cosmic prison in exchange for the power to enact vengeance. And uh, he becomes... And basically what I what I pitch this to is Ghost Rider meets the Hulk. He becomes a eight and a half, nine foot hulking samurai, like burning samurai with this like meteoric armor, who's capable of raising the dead, uh, who's capable of of controlling elements of fire, burning down things. Um, he he basically rules his portion of the Kami realm, which for those of you who don't know, uh, is a realm based in Japanese mythology, where a lot of the yokai come from. Yokai is another word for demon. Um, I'm sure everybody who's an anime fan knows what yokai means. Um, but yeah, and that's basically what it is. It's a tragic story about vengeance and family, and he's got to rediscover his honor. Uh, one of the covers um, was colored by Dan Kemp, who does a lot of the coloring for Spawn. Uh, super excited. The cover was drawn by Jeff Muth, and it it actually, it's actually a prerequisite look into the future of what I call his final form. Mm -hmm. um, so right now it's kind of a demonic, uh, out of control form. And when, when he goes on this journey, he's learning and growing and learning how to control and restrain himself. He doesn't know the power he's unleashed, but he also doesn't know the power that he has control or, or, or the power that he still has. Because a number one job of the demon is to convince the person or the soul that they either don't have control, they're inferior, they're insecure, whatever they can to whittle their way into your consciousness and kind of take over. And that's kind of what happens. And so um, it starts a journey and the journey is ultimately it's for him to expel uh, the wild Oni spirit completely. 
uh, using the sword of heaven, which is another mythology that I, I took um, from uh, from Japanese culture. And along the way, we'll meet we'll meet some Jap Japanese samurai from history. Uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was the one of the last one of the last shogun before they went into like a two hundred and eighty four year term of peace. Right before right before you know the West showed up on what they called black ships. Um, but it's a really cool crossover. I'm, I'm going to have some some French pirates in there. Uh, there's flintlock pistols and 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 samurai swords. Um, but basically, it's a uh, it's a it's a dark supernatural samurai uh, drama filled with vengeance, action, and carnage. And uh, you can go back it. Well, you can go get notified when it launches uh, right now at Inked Pub. Okay. Or ink, that... ink Ink dot Ink dot Pub slash Wild Oni. Um, and sign up now. I got 59 followers. I'm I'm hoping to launch at 75, and it's going to be the first issue of probably eight or 12, okay. if I'm being honest. And um, I'm not sure if I'll do any more individual issues, so I really feel like this has graphic novel potential. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of my hopes is that the book is completely done. I've paid for this completely out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know how much a real comic costs <laughs> out of pocket with yeah. six alternative covers, it was about five grand. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty, pretty much in the same range. Cause I did the same thing. Like for my, my first, my, my comic is it's all paid for and done. Covers are done everything. And yeah, pretty much. Uh, oh, you in, have to in that race. Yeah. It's a, it's a good experience. It's a good yeah, experience. It's, it's a way great. for you to build network. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely, it's amazing. And I think it, it makes the, the Kickstarter launch, a lot easier because it's like it's it's done i'm just trying to get it out there at this point it's not you know it's not like all right pay me so i can now pay other people to do it like it sucks having to shell that money out but it, it definitely has the benefit of like all right once once the the campaign's done if it's successful like you know we're, we're, we're the ball's rolling we're ready to go yeah and and i guess one of the things that i because i've been i've been because i've got tears left that's all i got left to put out is like mm -hmm. tears and i got i've got some great ones but if if I'm being honest, it's really scary because you don't know how the public's going to react to your work um, with a lot of the political landscape and terminology thrown around like, you know, gender bending. And and I don't what, what do they call that when you steal history from another culture? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Well, oh, God, I, what, how do I not know this? Uh, I, my, my brain's not functioning right now. Um We don't need to spread the negativity, wow. but um, <laughs> but but yeah, like. Uh, uh, appropriation cultural appropriation cultural appropriation so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm slightly concerned uh which is why i i tend to this is why while i was conducting the narrative i and and I, I don't have any fear because i i like totally botched anything within the culture like i feel like i'm respecting the history yeah. while also telling a great story but like you, you never under you never know. So once you put it on the internet, man, it's it's there forever. Yeah. So uh, it's been a it's been a struggle. Yeah. Well, I think to... uh, you know, I've had that issue too because mine is a Western, but there are like I have there's a a, a, a heavy and important kind of Native American presence in the book, mm. and there is that part that's like okay, you know, I'm uh, you know I'm a. I'm a half black, half white guy with no native, uh, you know, background is, or is anybody going to look at it and say, Hey, what are you doing? So, so, you know, I think you, you know, no matter what you, you have that, I think at, at the end of the day, it's like, you're just trying, you're trying to tell a good story. And if you're, if you're writing about another culture, if you're doing it honestly, and, 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 you know, you're, you're doing it, you know, from, you know, genuinely, then I don't think it matters. And, An and another point, 
to have a good editor is someone is going to look at it, not just specifically for cultural appropriation, but they might catch something that isn't authentic. So, um, and especially looking at like, like I really, I really did research on this. Like I looked at what the kind of settings would look like. I, and I gave direction towards armor uh, and weapons and, and kind of hairstyles and styles in general. And I was really genuine in my approach about it. Um, that I just, I don't, I don't, I haven't been out there and I, and I know what CG looks like out there on Twitter and a lot of it's nasty and I just don't, I don't appreciate it, but I also don't acknowledge it. So, but what I'm hoping that this, this campaign accomplishes is that it helps me finish the project so that I can finally put something out on the market. So that when I finally do apply for a lot of these bigger jobs, because every year, every year I uh, I apply for um, the DC usually has at least one assistant editor uh, position open every year. And then, you know, the Disney has the talent search thing. And then a bunch of these other companies do talent searches as well. And they always have this section in those submission forms where they're like, hey, put something, uh, put a link in here that takes you to something that you published. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I pop yeah. in, I pop in a link. Cause, cause I was, I did a lot of proofreading for, uh, 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 an IP called shadows daughter, mm. which is actually published through Marcosia, uh, from a good buddy of mine, Morgan Quaid, uh, who runs a uh, super serious comics. Uh, and it's a great book, but I don't know if that like, proofreading a comic like does that give you much credibility (laughs) who knows but if you if you could show that you've you've done your own project from start to finish all the way up from concept to production then i I feel like that gives you a little bit more validation and credibility yeah so uh i I really hope that is but that that's the project that i'm working on now i got a bunch of other ones in the pipeline but this one's ready to go and i can't wait till it's you know it's it's good to launch and i'll I'll make sure to we'll definitely include links to it um and uh awesome you know now uh so two questions before we wrap up um first i ask everybody this so we're, we're doing like my you know kind of as part of part of my you know this series of interviews we kind of have our our portable hole publishing kind of comic library so every creator that I talk to, I ask to give me one or two books that we sh- we need to add to our our library. So if you were to pick one or two books, um, comics, what would you what what should we add to our to our library here? Let's see. I give you something special since you probably don't have many people who do interviews next to their bookshelf. <laughs> Let's see. I think this one is important. Uh, well, I mean, all of them are important. Church yeah. is yeah, one or two books. I mean, I yeah, can. That's a challenge. It's like, yeah, okay, what, are the, what are the two books? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the, the two books I've used the most, one is most recently, and that was, I discovered that. I got another one coming in the mail because I keep finding all these different ones. Marvel even put out one uh, called, uh, it's called Script to Page, and it's got a, it's got a bunch of scripts in there that you can, you can study. Oh, here it is. <sighs> So this was called Everything Guide to Writing Graphic Novels. It was uh, written by Mark Ellis and uh, Melissa Martin Ellis. Okay. It's like that. Uh, I don't know. It's blocking it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was okay. Got it. Yeah. That was a little bit. A little bit. A little yeah. bit. Um, this one only ran me like twelve bucks on Amazon. Okay. Really awesome. Uh, and this one is the Comic Experience Guide to Writing Comics, scripting your story ideas from start to finish. 
by Andy Schmidt. Okay. I really recommend this one um, because Andy puts in uh, examples from his own work and on the process. And Andy, Andy, I think is one of my most uh, influential comic professionals. Um, I, I've listened to almost every episode of his podcast. I did all the way up to 234. It's called the nuts and bolts of making comics and um, great, great information, everything you need to know on there, but you're really not going to know everything you need to know until you start doing it yourself. Yeah. These books give you the knowledge to do it yourself and they give you, they give you a bird's eye look into what you're looking at, especially in the, the back of these books, they, they have sections where they talk about the business yeah. and how to succeed. Cause that's, that's, that's that is huge. Um, Gamal Han Hannessy, um, who's a comic book lawyer is actually about to launch on Kickstarter um, the comic books business. Uh, he's been on panels at San Diego. Yeah, I, was, comic -Con. I, saw, I was at one of his panels uh, at New York comic con last year. He he's a really good dude. Um, I'm, I'm still need to talk to him because he, he does a lot of legal work for independent comics. Yeah. Uh, he even partnered with Andy Schmidt and they started this, uh, they started this uh, professional uh, comic book connectors through comics experience. It's like $35 a month. I haven't tried it yet, but he had yeah. something and he had something similar once you finished the class, but it was like 240 for an entire year, but it put you in a chat room with people who are in professional comics professionally mm -hmm. and also in independent um, so it, it was an, it was an interesting, uh, they were both interesting reads. I'm still going through the graphic novel one because, uh, I've written 22 pages, so I know how to construct those now, yeah. uh, cause writing a graphic novel is different than writing, you know, a 22 page issue where yeah. you have to stop the narrative at 22 because it becomes a, it becomes a uh, publishing expense to go over. Yeah. Um, but those are the two that I recommend the most. I, I actually I'm at crafting a list right now because at my uh, local Writers Guild meeting for Mississippi, I'm going to be presenting. I'm going to be giving a presentation on the visual, the visual uh, arts and uh, writing of graphic novels. So I'm, I'm conducting a list right now of all the books that I've read and all the books that I've seen I've yet to read into like one giant list. And um, when I get my my emailing list to Substack up and running. I hope to offer that as uh, the giveaway, the free giveaway to, uh, to those to sign up for the email. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, so now where, where can people find you? I know you have a podcast, so kind of shout out your podcast, social media, anything, anywhere that anyone that's listening to is like, like, like this has been a wealth of information. So if anyone wants to hear more <laughs> from you, where, where can they find you? So I have, I got four seasons and you know, it's a chain of my, changing my voice my name is inevitable mike and i am the host and 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 podcast premier prevera of uh comics and the letter n pop tarts and if you want to be a guest on that you can hit me up at comics underscore pop tarts at yahoo.com um but i have four four uh four seasons running strong on that show i've uh, i've interviewed uh lots of cool people like monty michael moore um one of the writers of the Punisher, uh, a lot of a lot of good wealth of information for people who are looking to get into the industry, uh, as far as uh, from the business side, the art side, and the writing side, and then I also I also try to pump in uh, my own writing and experience, but also a lot of kind of pop cultural analysis, comparisons, and opinions. So if you, you like that kind of thing, then, you know, I got a group on, uh, I got a group on Facebook. Uh, you'll see the big colorful illustrated head, uh, surrounded by a pop tart holding Majorn. Um, 
really cool <laughs> really cool graphic but it's uh comics and the letter n pop tarts i'm on uh spotify amazon uh google uh iheart radio is our most recent uh pickup which i'm super super excited about and then uh hopefully sometime next year i'm gonna go video and we're gonna have a youtube channel uh we're gonna have a rumble and i'd like to start making like short reels of all my stuff there's there's a lot of stuff that i want to do with that that writing is just taking up all my time yeah. it's hard to be a podcaster and a creator at the same time because you got to find time to do this and find time to do that you know man this is like our third our third engagement before we finally had the yeah. thing right yeah so yeah, it's definitely tough but but yeah i'm on uh i'm on uh facebook i'm on you can find me on twitter through comics and pop tarts and then i'm on instagram uh, michael's food for thought uh my own my own facebook Give my hashtag real quick because I got it pulled up right now. Is uh is uh, MJ Florio Comics for Life on uh, on Facebook? Uh, I don't tend to stay on too much social media because I, I just got too much going on at one time. I check it before th- before two o'clock um, because I found out something really cool on social media, especially on Facebook. The algorithms don't log anything after two o'clock so if there's something you're not seeing on someone else's walls because they posted after two but if you catch them before two o'clock that's 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 where traffic gets pushed the most okay yeah it's it's man facebook and business life it's i really hope there's another social media platform that pops up that's got no algorithms in it one day whatsoever or comes up with a better way to disperse because cutting you off at so many views and all this and you have to post and post and post for your visibility to be unlocked is man it's it, it really hard it's really hard to to be an independent small business press even in comics to make money that way because not everybody's going to see your stuff and that's kind of not fair yeah no, so true. but yeah the man that's 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 where i'm at awesome all right, great. Well, no, definitely, we uh, we gotta we gotta set this up again because uh, you know there's there's so there's so much we didn't get to touch on, but but thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, yeah, man, uh, no problem. I come back anytime. Uh, I'm available all the time. Uh, I do work from home, so I'm usually in my office. That's where you can find me, either watching TV, absorbing things from an ex analytical monologue of opinions on my own podcast, or uh, waiting for another good conversation. Uh, maybe we can meet together sometime soon so we could talk about the strike. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Unless yeah, they say, unless, yeah, I got, <laughs> I got, I got lots of things to say yeah. about AI and the strike. Yeah, Trust no, me. definitely, yeah, we should, we definitely should set something up. Well, thank, thank you so much. <laughs> no problem, man. You guys have a great night. Listen to this podcast. You heard it first. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the channel. And while you're at it, leave a review. We can be found on all social media platforms at portable underscore whole. We can be found on all podcast platforms at portable whole publishing. We can be found on the web at portable whole publishing.com. And you can email us at portable whole pub at gmail.com.